You are listening to National Security Law Today. Hey, podcast listeners. This past June, a bipartisan group of lawmakers released a draft of the Federal Data Privacy and Security Bill, the American Data Privacy and Protection Act. This legislation would establish a new data privacy framework, including consumer data privacy rights, data minimization requirements, enforcement mechanisms, and more. While it may not pass this term, this bipartisan legislation is something to watch. We thought you'd be interested in listening to excerpts from our webinar hosted last February on national security and privacy in a digitized world. Thanks for tuning in. National security and privacy in a digitized world. And we're having this session in the context of very violent events happening in Europe right now with Russia and Ukraine. We will have a wide-ranging conversation about national security and privacy implications worldwide uh, based on what's happening with technology, but also taking into account you know, the context in which we live these days with a world posing multiple challenges and threats on multiple fronts. I'm joined today by a stellar panel of participants. Uh, super happy to have them. I'm Alex Joel. I'm the moderator here. I'm currently teaching national security and privacy and technology issues at the Washington College of Law and leading a research program on transatlantic data flows and privacy and national security issues. And for 14 years before that, I was uh, the Civil Liberties, Privacy and Transparency Officer of the Office of the Director of National Intelligence. And I'm joined by Leonard Bailey. He is Special Counsel for National Security it's the Computer Crime and Intellectual Property section of the Department of Justice, CSIPS, and he's held that position. He's been in that job for many years. He is a uh, real expert on the national security implications of how we carry out law enforcement activities in the United States and looking at the various legal implications of technology developments. Also joined by Ben Hubner. He is currently the Chief of the Office of Civil Liberties, Privacy, and Transparency at ODNI. Before that, he was at CIA uh, doing important privacy work there. And before that, at the Department of Justice, really a key leader on FISA oversight issues. I don't think Stuart Baker needs an introduction, but if you haven't listened to his podcast, you're missing out because it's a fantastic source of news and information in this area. Also joined by Estelle Massé. She is the European Legislative Manager and Global Data Protection Lead at Access Now. She is currently in Brussels and has been an important voice for civil society on privacy issues in terms of how technology impacts privacy, both in Europe, but also around the world. We have events going on in Ukraine that remind us that the threats in today's world are kinetic, are old school in many ways. In a world where data is essentially the lifeblood of the global economy, where technologies have been developed and deployed by companies that users are using in new and different ways that put a lot of powerful tools in the hands of users, but also generate enormous volumes of data. I think the situation in Ukraine reminds us that even as we think of these old school military threats, we have to think about where is the intelligence that the intelligence community needs to find about those old school threats? Are they simply on specialized military channels or is that data available in many other places intermingled with the data of ordinary citizens? And what risks does that pose for privacy as countries try to find out the intentions and, and plans of adversaries to protect property and people? 
And there are a multitude of other threats as well that could come up, including influencing elections, uh, disinformation campaigns, cybercrime, and enormous volumes of data where if that data falls into the wrong hands uh, or is used for the wrong purposes, could facilitate bad actors in terms of how what they're trying to do. Even as countries are working together through these different legal arrangements, we still have very important differences in how our legal frameworks work and think about privacy. And as a result, there are challenges to how data flow should continue, how national security activities should take place in this interconnected world where different countries' legal frameworks sort of rub up against each other and there's significant friction. And one of the perennial questions that I think come up in this area is whether or not our legal frameworks are moving fast enough. They were developed around the world, the legal frameworks that are in place. Some of them are new, like the General Data Protection Regulation in the European Union, although that has older roots. But some are old, like the Fourth Amendment of the U.S. Constitution. How are our legal frameworks attuned to adjust to these changes? Are they adjusting to those changes rapidly enough? And what is the way in which those changes manifest themselves in terms of how we carry out our activities under the rule of law. And we'll start with a Fourth Amendment to get grounded in this. And I'm going to ask Leonard here, what changes have you seen, Leonard, in terms of Fourth Amendment jurisprudence in the United States? The Fourth Amendment, of course, as I've just mentioned, hundreds of years ago was originally penned, has remained as written centuries ago. What changes have you seen in terms of how the courts have applied the Fourth Amendment in this new era? Thanks, Alex. Let me start by saying thank you for the invitation to participate on this panel. Thrilled to be here with the other panelists. So I, I think that question really right now has to start with the discussion of, of Carpenter versus United States, a case which some believe is a bellwether, some believe is a landmark case. Personally, I believe it is a significant case. I'm not sure whether it's a bellwether, though, and I'm, I'm a little bit surprised at that. It clearly was significant in that it was probably, arguably, the first time the Supreme Court really took up a case that was you know, cyber. You know, with apologies to Riley versus California, 2013 case that was about cell phones. But that case really was about uh, the search incident to arrest doctrine under the Fourth Amendment. In contrast, you know, Carpenter was really about the sort of, apropos of this panel, data privacy issues, right? So it's the court asking for this category of information, which was location information that was, per the court, detailed, encyclopedic, and you know, effortlessly compiled. Is there a privacy interest that triggers Fourth Amendment protection? And the court concluded there was. The government's acquisition of cell site location information was a search requiring a warrant rather than a court order, which is what the government had, had used in the case. The reason I hedge on whether this case, you know, which, which obviously has potentially huge impact, is because of the nature in which it characterized, well, I guess there's still debates about its scope and its application. First on the scope. If you look at the opinion, you see Chief Justice Roberts, who was the author, focusing on the, on the point that this was a, quote, narrow decision. You know, it's explicit in saying that we are deciding the facts before us today. And, and not other facts. And I think that was really principally because if you took some of the general principles that were articulated in, in Carpenter, you know, maybe as dicta, maybe not, and apply them generally across the Fourth Amendment landscape, it would risk breaking some Fourth Amendment jurisprudence. And so I think one way around that was to say, 
this is a case that's specifically about what's in front of the court, location information that meets these elements. What was curious about that is at the same time, you had legal scholars looking at the opinion and coming to a very different conclusion. Uh, I point to an article written by Paul Ohm in October of 2018 uh, in the aftermath of, of Carpenter, in which he characterized the reasoning and the holding as, quote, breathtakingly broad. So you have the court saying you've got a narrow decision and you've got, you know, legal scholars saying this is breathtakingly broad. What has happened in the three and a half years since Carpenter was handed down is that courts have largely hewed more closely to the chief justice's characterization of the, of the case with the invitation to apply Carpenter in the area of things like the collection of IP addresses, uh, poll cameras, automated license plate readers, ankle monitoring bracelets. The federal courts have kind of resisted expanding the doctrine. So it's remained relatively narrow. The other question is, you know, in terms of implementation, many thought that Carpenter would be an opportunity to revisit, if not overturn, the third party doctrine. You know, this notion that when you provide your information voluntarily to a third party, you, you may lose Fourth Amendment protection of that information. You know, the court was very careful in saying also that it was not, in fact, overturning Smith v. Maryland or U.S. versus Miller, the kind of core third party doctrine cases. And since then, no court has really taken up that invitation. You had a, the Maxwell Court in the Southern District of New York last year saying that Carpenter was the lone exception to the general rule that you lose your Fourth Amendment protection by providing your information voluntarily to a third party. And so I, I think there's still a lot of questions about how exactly Carpenter will be read. There, there's no question that it's had huge impact on certain types of of tracking and monitoring. So if you're engaged in some prolonged tracking that reveals the intimate details of your life or your habits, you know, it's highly likely that you're talking about conduct that will receive some Fourth Amendment protection. And that, that happened in the one break from all of this in a Fourth Circuit case in Baltimore, the leaders of, of a beautiful struggle versus Baltimore police, which uh, invalidated a unmanned aerial surveillance program that the Baltimore police was, was running. But in contrast to that, if you're deal dealing with sort of short-term types of tracking of movements, particularly in public space, that is akin to the type of capabilities that existed before technology uh, advanced things. So courts have been very reluctant to pull that in under the Fourth Amendment protection umbrella, even where technology was involved. Long short, I think Carpenter is, is going to be a gift that keeps on giving for many years. We're going to be interpreting it and trying to uh, figure out the contours of the case. Uh, but I have to say that right now, I'm I'm actually a little bit surprised that it hasn't changed more than it has. Yeah, and I think it illustrates very nicely the, the tension between hewing to precedent, right, and adjusting to, to changes in technology. So when the third party doctrine first was established in the cases that you talked about, we were really, you know, uh, in, in Smith v. Maryland, for example, it was a pen register trap and trace device. I can't remember which one it was. I think it might have been a pen register that was installed to capture the phone calls to a specific phone. And it was very individualized in that way, very fact specific, very investigation specific to, this, to the circumstances that the police were investigating at the time. And analogizing that to where we are now, the vast amounts of data and all of the concerns, the reasoning that the Carpenter Court laid out, which, as you said, detailed, encyclopedic, effortlessly compiled, those kinds of phrases can apply to a, a range of data held by third parties. 
And yet they didn't want to overturn the third party doctrine, obviously. So they said that this was just narrowly before them in terms of the facts. To what extent, Leonard, do you think it's it's very much focused on, for example, location information in, in terms of what you've seen and in, in, in how courts have applied it? Obviously, it, it certainly is applied to location information. You know, the, the real issue is, is how far beyond that it will likely creep. I mean, there are other applications that I think you you know, could readily say, provide someone with a notion of what your intimate habits are. You know, things like our records of, for example, your grocery shop purchases, which could provide you with information about someone's habits and their lifestyle. Again, but th thus far, there has been a reluctance to to create such expansion of, of this particular doctrine. Yeah, thanks, Leonard. I'd like to turn to Ben to get, Ben, your input on this set of issues. Uh, obviously, one of the key ways lawyers look at the impact of technology in terms of our legal system is case law, uh, and another is statutes. But the intelligence community has to operate in a zone where maybe a certain amount of, of activity is permitted by case law and by statutes, but yet the intelligence community will sometimes restrict itself further through its own policies and procedures and deal with some of these issues raised by changes in technology through other instruments. So I was wondering what your view has been, Ben. You've been in this job for a while now, and you, before that, were over at CIA, before that DOJ. You've seen this develop over some period of time. How has the IC's efforts to protect privacy uh, evolved as changes of technology have taken place? Thank you, Alex. Um, thank you to all the panelists. Thank you to the American Bar Association. This is a really important topic and, and glad to be able to engage in this discussion with all of you. I think I would say my experience is there's been actually a relatively substantial shift. And I, I want to sort of back up a little bit. I think you've laid a lot of good groundwork. I want to expand on it a bit. If we look at the underlying legal framework that governs the vast majority of intelligence activities in the United States, one common theme in, in those authorities is this conception of a, a domestic foreign split, a domestic foreign construct, right? So the preeminent example of that is you have the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act. And if you conduct electronic surveillance in the United States, you have to go to the court, the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court. You have to have a probable cause showing. There are certain procedures that are mandated by statute uh, that govern that type of collection. If you were to conduct electronic surveillance outside of the United States. In general, that would be conducted pursuant to Executive Order 12333, which has its own requirements and, and authorities, but a different set, right, with this idea that we have one set of rules domestically and another set of rules in, in this foreign space, right? So what's sort of the example of that? And this is something that ha happened then, it still happens today, a, a human intelligence operation. In some darkened European alley, someone hands over a sheaf of papers to their U.S. intelligence handler. And that is collection. That is collection that happens pursuant to Executive Order 12333. There's a responsibility to look at that, that those papers, to, to review them, make sure that they're there for the authorized purpose. If there's irrelevant information about Americans, to leave that information on the cutting room floor and to, and to kind of proceed accordingly. That's the sort of historical conception. There's a lot of stress on that because of some of the technology changes that we've been talking about. And, and to me, I, I kind of bucket them into, into three large buckets. So one is certainly increased digitization, but not just that, increased data flows that, that cross borders, right? So data in general has very little respect for borders, um, transits all the time. Money moves abroad a lot. We can see the financial markets today showing how effects in Ukraine are having those types of effects. 
And so this idea that if I'm conducting collection outside the United States, I'm in a space where there's you know, probably not a lot of US person information and, uh, and I can handle it if I happen to come across it, that, that starts to break down when you have those types of data flows. Second, as part of those buckets, and you referenced this earlier, are the types of collection and the types of places that information resides. It is one thing to talk about a, a effectively closed network that is collected against abroad, against a foreign adversary, and the likelihood that you're going to come across an individual's personal information in that in a way that would raise privacy and civil liberties concerns. And it is a very different thing in the modern environment that we live in when those networks are far more open, right? When the same network is used by a terrorist abroad to promote their propaganda, and that network is used by a foreign adversary for a disinformation campaign, and that network is the same network my cousin in Ohio posts photos of his kids on, that's a very different set of concerns from a privacy and civil liberties perspective than that closed network conception. And the third of these sort of three buckets of issues is that the underlying data itself, you know, it rarely comes with a country of origin label, right? If, if, I, if I'm going to send an email to, to my fellow panelists, it doesn't have a little American flag attached to it. And it certainly doesn't have, you know, a, a flag attached to it with all of their uh, citizenship status. And so this idea that data is sort of ready-made and, and, and shows whose data it is or which country it is, again, another place where that all starts to break down. I don't want in suggesting that to say, you know, that the US intelligence community is out there on the internet monitoring everything. That, that is not the case. But what it does mean, and I'm going to go back, right? Instead of a, you know, a sheaf of papers in a darkened European alley, if that same asset, instead of the papers, hands over a thumb drive with three gigs of information on it, you're going to have to handle that information in a different way, given that data framework that I've just talked about. Great. Thanks, Ben. I'll, I'll, we'll certainly circle back and talk some more with both you and Leonard on the US legal framework and how changes in technology have impacted how our agencies are carrying out their work, both on law enforcement and intelligence matters. One of the key realities that we're dealing with is that companies are the ones who are generating a lot of this data. They're providing the technology and the services that are used by people around the world. And the use of, those of that technology and those services generates enormous volumes of data about people. It strikes me that there's a lot of data, as we've talked about, it's flowing around the world. And it's generated to a large degree by companies and held by companies. I wanted to get your views on what you see as some privacy risks that we should pay particular attention to as we think about these issues. Let me turn to Stuart. I know you have views on every topic that has been covered so far. So rather than uh, channel you in a particular direction, uh, I'll, I'll give you the opportunity to comment. Yeah, I thought I would. Uh, you're, you're absolutely right. The collection of data by private companies in the internet age, and especially Internet 2.0, uh, Web 2.0, <clears throat> is staggering and far beyond anything that the US intelligence agencies have ever dreamed of. They are, in a very real sense, competitors with US intelligence and from time to time act like it. Uh, certainly, they act like uh, uh, arm's length actors with their own interests uh, uh, that are quite distinct from U.S. national security interests. And those are mostly to keep the flow of data coming. That has produced 
tensions in the U.S. over uh, U.S. intelligence programs that the companies were afraid because they gathered the information from the companies. And it has turned out since 9-11, among our most productive intelligence uh, tools has been going to private industry and asking them for information about people we're concerned about. That has produced a range of reactions from the companies. And as it's become less politically popular to assist the U.S. government in national security investigations, they've become more and more sticky about providing that information, much more determined to see that there is actually legal authority and uh, a compulsion backed uh, regime that uh, requires them to provide it. That's the domestic situation. The international situation is similar to that, but the, the difficulties are much more pointed because the introduction of European law into what was a moderately tense relationship between big U.S. tech companies and the intelligence community has really sharpened that conflict because Europe is essentially threatening the business model of most web companies if they continue to cooperate with the U.S. government under U.S. law. Uh, now, I'm going to stop there and give Estelle a chance now that she's back. Thanks again for having me. And now, listen, I think you're correct in the sense that we are having an issue with the business model of those companies in Europe. And we're having an issue with it not necessarily because of the links to intelligence authority, but primarily already because of the collected all business model. Uh, because fundamentally, this clashes with fundamental rights we have protected in Europe. And so we have designed and reinforced this framework that we have and that we want to enforce on all European and external actors operating in the EU market. And obviously, to be completely honest, a lot of the platforms that are leading in the online economy are American platforms. So there is a huge focus on the relationship and what it means between the EU and the US. But the impetus behind our data protection regime was never to create, I think, this tension. And it's here, we need to acknowledge it. And then it has led to a lot of discussion between the link between what it means in the commercial sense and how the commercial sense is also linked to the national security and the law enforcement activity because of the way data held by companies may be accessed under uh, under US program. And so from, from the European perspective, the vision is that if that is to happen, it needs to happen with a series of safeguards around it, with a series of principles and with a series of rights, including for non-American and in this case, for, for European. And so the U.S. framework has designed for, for protection for Americans, even though I know there are calls to, to extend those, but it is much more limited for, for non-American. And this is where, from a European perspective, we, we take an issue at because our framework of human rights is a universal one and our rights applies to you here and we would like to have um, the same happen. Now, this creates issue in, in the law enforcement, in the national security context with this access and this also creates a lot of question, which maybe is less discussed on your side of the Atlantic, but it creates a lot of question also for the European authorities. The same way, you know, we have court rulings telling that the US framework is not adequate to the European one and there is an issue with safeguards. We also have a list of ruling from the highest court in Europe 
telling the French authority, telling the German authority, the UK authority, even though they're no longer a member state, that they have to change their framework because there are their rules on data access, their rules on data retention are not compliant with our fundamental rights and with our charter. And these are landmark rulings that are really important also to show that, you know, we also need to get our house in order. And it's not because we're we're saying that there is an issue on the US side that we also are completely abstain from fixing those same issue in Europe and making sure that we have safeguard in place as data is more and more important on the economic side and on the intelligence side. But all of this needs to exist in a framework where the rule of law is upheld on all sides. Thanks for tuning in. To hear the entirety of this panel discussion, check out the link in the description below. And don't forget to check out details on our upcoming 32nd annual Review of the Field of National Security Law, CLE Conference, which will take place November 17th and 18th in Washington, D.C. Information can be found in the description below or on our website at www.americanbar.org slash natsecurity. The views expressed on national security law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association, and this recording should not be construed as representing ABA policy.